This week, Lynn Tilton abruptly resigns from Zohar, Revlon in discussions with Creditors Group, Sanchez Energy debtors concede possibility of dip impairment. More on all this and as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the Week in Reorg. Hello, and welcome to the Reorg podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm Connor Skelving. And I'm Raksha Manjanath. Later this episode, our Reorg team will catch everyone up on the latest from the opioid litigation. It's Sunday, March 29th. At an emergency hearing on Thursday, counsel for the Zohar Debtors Independent Director disclosed that Lynn Tilton abruptly resigned her management positions with the debtors' portfolio companies on Saturday, March 21st, less than a day after Judge Karen Owens ordered her to cooperate in a joint monetization of the portfolio companies on an undisclosed timeline. Judge Owens, however, denied the debtors' sealed motion for emergency relief, invalidating Tilton's minority voting and control rights over the portfolio companies. Counsel for the debtors and their independent director criticized Tilton for her sudden resignation, lamenting the resulting, quote, instability and uncertainty at the portfolio companies during the coronavirus crisis. Counsel for Tilton, however, denied that the resignation was triggered by Judge Owens' monetization order or the crisis, stating that it was, quote, impossible for Tilton to continue managing the companies without further maturity extensions from the lenders. Uh, Tilton's counsel called the emergency motion to void her shareholder voting and consent rights over selection of replacement management and directors a, quote, land grab. Counsel for the debtors and their independent director also suggested they may seek to hold Tilton in contempt of the court's monetization order, arguing that the resignation is a breach of Tilton's 2018 agreement to jointly monetize the portfolio companies. Counselor Tilton countered that the group was, quote, imagining conflicts where no conflicts yet exist, adding that Tilton is, quote, committed to working with the debtors to accomplish as smooth a transition as can be accomplished. Judge Owens admitted to sympathizing with the debtor situation, but stated that an orderly transition, quote, should be able to be accomplished through proper state law corporate governance mechanisms. Revlon is having discussions with a group of creditors with holdings in its $500 million, 5.75% unsecured notes due 2021, and the $1.75 billion L plus 350 BPS term loan due September 2023 about potentially providing an alternative to the $850 million refinancing package from Jefferies that was announced earlier this month, Reorg reported. The cosmetics company said earlier this month that Jefferies would provide up to $850 million in two new term loan facilities to repay the $500 million 2021 notes and the $200 million L plus 950 term loan due August 2023 provided by Aries with the remaining proceeds to boost the company's liquidity. The company chose the Jefferies deal over a competing proposal offered by a Strook-represented group, according to sources. The Jefferies refinancing would address a springing maturity, where the 2023 term loan and revolver maturity spring to November 16th, in the event that, as of that date, Revlon's liquidity does not exceed the amount of outstanding 2021 notes by at least $200 million according to Covenants by Reorg. The deal would also take out the Aries term loan that significantly reduced Revlon's flexibility to incur debt and liens and transfer assets to unrestricted subsidiaries. Pursuant to the Jefferies refinancing, the new Branco term loan facility of up to $300 million, whose issuer would be Products Corp., 
would be guaranteed by certain indirect foreign subsidiaries of Products Corp. or Brandcos, whose direct and indirect subsidiaries would be unrestricted subsidiaries for purposes of the existing debt agreements of Products Corp. It would hold various intellectual property assets related to the Elizabeth Arden and American Crew brands and certain other portfolio brands. The term loan due 2023 would not benefit from the new Brandco term loans collateral, but all guarantors of the 2023 term loan would guarantee the new Brandco facility and the Brandco facility would be secured on pari passu basis by the assets securing the old term loan. The company said it plans to close the Jefferies refinancing transaction in the second quarter. CFO Victoria Dolan said on a call on March 10th that the June 30th expiration of Jefferies' commitment represent a, quote, firm commitment which the company anticipates closing before that date. CapEx reductions, activity slowdown, and guidance withdrawals continued across the energy sector as crude prices remained volatile, with WTI ending the week near $21. Lurito Petroleum, a Permian-focused operator that sold bonds earlier this year, cut CapEx by 36% and said it would suspend completions for the rest of the year starting in May. Chevron said it would reduce CapEx by $4 billion, or 20%, with $2 billion of that from the Permian, where the energy giant reduced its production guidance by 20%. EQT Inc., the nation's largest natural gas producer, suspended its dividend while Apache Corp. was downgraded to double B plus, junk territory, from triple B. Basic Energy Services slashed CapEx to $17 million from $43 million and announced staffing adjustments, including, quote, furloughs of all executive, office, and administrative staff. Holders of Whiting Petroleum's unsecured notes replaced Evercore as financial advisor with PJT Partners while Polaris bondholders are working with Hulahan Loki, Kramer Levin as U.S. counsel and Aiken Gump as U.K. counsel and have reached out to the rig operator regarding a potential deleveraging transaction. The travel industry continues to brace for and adapt to impacts from the coronavirus. Royal Caribbean suspended all sailings worldwide, stating it, quote, expects to return to service on May 12, 2020. The company also entered into a $2.2 billion, 364-day term loan, giving it approximately $3.6 billion in liquidity, according to a filing. American Airlines borrowed $1 billion on its delayed draw term loan facility entered into the previous week. United Airlines similarly borrowed $500 million in two installments from a term loan facility entered into March 20th. Hilton Worldwide CEO Christopher Nassetta announced he would forego his remaining 2020 salary, while other Hilton executives pledged to reduce their salaries by 50%, quote, for the duration of the crisis. SeaWorld Entertainment borrowed the remaining $187.5 million available on its revolver as the company takes, quote, meaningful actions to eliminate costs and capital expenditures while parks remain closed. Retailers also implemented measures to increase liquidity as stores remained closed. Williams-Sonoma drew down the remaining almost $480 million available under its $500 million revolving credit facility, quote, as a precautionary measure. Signet Jewelers drew down $900 million on its asset-based revolver, leaving it with $1.2 billion in cash and $292 million in revolver availability as its stores remain closed until, quote, pandemic conditions allow. Pier 1 announced a furlough, quote, across its business until further notice, 
and a 50% reduction in executive pay as its stores remain closed since March 22nd. The Gap slowly drew down its $500 million revolver, quote, to strengthen financial flexibility and also announced a $300 million reduction in 2020 CapEx as it reviews, quote, all operating expenses for opportunities to reduce spending. On Monday, the Promesa Oversight Board announced that it has authorized the Puerto Rico government to use another $787 million, quote, to fight the COVID-19 emergency in addition to the $160 million from the Emergency Reserve Fund already authorized. The announcement came in a press release after Governor Wanda Vasquez presented a, quote, initial package of short-term economic and fiscal measures amid the ongoing COVID-19 emergency. The governor was flanked by Promesa Oversight Board Chairman Jose Carrion and Executive Director Natalie Juresco during her televised address from La Fortaleza. Also on Monday, the Promesa Oversight Board filed a motion seeking a limited adjournment of the hearing to consider the adequacy of the disclosure statement and related deadlines as a result of the impact of the coronavirus epidemic on Puerto Rico. A press release announcing the adjournment stated that despite the recent filing of the amended plan of adjustment, in light of Puerto Rico's current reality, the Oversight Board, quote, believes that the government and the Oversight Board's sole focus should be on getting Puerto Rico through this unfortunate crisis. The Oversight Board acknowledges in its motion that the adjournment gives rise to potential plan support agreement termination rights by the PSA parties, quote, in the event an order approving the disclosure statement is not entered by August 31st, 2020. Other top stories last week were Royal Caribbean announces new $2.2 billion 364-day term loan facility with option to extend an additional 364 days. Muni Airport issuers under COVID-19 pressure. O'Hare bonds down 21.2 points. LaGuardia's drop 16.4. Airport Muni index off 11.7%. Rowan note holders sue Valeris to unravel internal reorganization, eliminate guarantees, and recover hundreds of millions of dollars in cash transfers. Aurelius sends letter to company alleging fraudulent conveyance. Now, before we turn it over to Jim for the week ahead, we'd like to welcome legal analyst Sean Daly to provide a recap of how COVID-19 affected restructurings and bankruptcy plans this past week. Thanks, Raksha. I'm Sean Daly distressed at legal analyst, and I'll be joining you for the foreseeable future with a weekly review of notable developments and strategic moves in bankruptcy court that have resulted from the coronavirus. As restructuring activity is ramping up, this segment will attempt to highlight recent case developments, emerging themes, and responses to the current economic backdrop from a legal perspective, and hopefully provide you with some food for thought. EP Energy on Monday obtained court approval of the plan support termination stipulation entered into on March 19th pursuant to which the debtors and the supporting note holders agreed to terminate the plan transactions contemplated in the previous plan, including a new money rights offering. Judge Marvin Isger also entered an order vacating the confirmation order just under three weeks after originally granting confirmation. Wednesday, the debtors filed a motion to reject contracts related to a Patterson UTI drilling rig in Utah and said they're undertaking an analysis of all unexpired material leases and executory contracts as part of the modifications of their business plan necessitated by the recent oil price drops. Although drilling contracts aren't as long-term as midstream contracts, rejection now and renegotiation later, presuming a drop in contract rates from OFS companies in a low oil price environment, a strategy discussed in CEO Russell Parker's confirmation testimony, purely in the hypothetical at the time, 
could result in additional incremental liquidity. In the Altamesa and Kingfisher cases, where asset purchaser BCE Mach 3's committed financing from UBS became, quote, impractical after court approval of the sale, but before sale closing, because, in the words of the Buyer's Council, quote, market conditions have become quite intense in the oil and gas markets in particular due to the coronavirus, the debtors have, quote, now shifted their efforts to a dual-track strategy in which they are both, A, pursuing their rights and remedies against the buyer, BCE Mach 3, under the purchase and sale agreement, while B, simultaneously working constructively with secured lenders, the official committees of unsecured creditors, the ad hoc group of note holders on the Kingfisher side, uh, and the debtors on both sides of the house to explore alternative transactions. With BCE Mach, their creditor constituents, or parties outside the capital structure, that can be, quote, consummated promptly. On the latter work stream, the debtors announced they've received indications of interest as part of their renewed marketing process, including interest from buyer BCE Mach 3. Meanwhile, a hearing on the ultimacing Kingfisher debtors' allegations that BCE Mach has breached its now-abandoned purchase and sale agreements has been set for April 2nd. At a status conference on Friday, counsel to BCE Mach 3 said that there will be a legal dispute about what it means to have, quote, secured financing, saying that the financing was, quote, secured, but not, quote, finalized, nor, quote, funded. This may be a more niche dispute, but I hope the Tesla bears out there will find some joy in the nuance of that argument. Funding secured, indeed. Elsewhere in the oil patch, Sanchez Energy's dip lenders asserted at a case status conference on Monday that the dip is the fulcrum security in light of the current oil price environment. Counsel to the ad hoc group of unsecured creditors did not take this dip impairment comment lying down, reminding the court of pending lien challenge litigation, which according to the unsecured group could invalidate 80% of purported liens on the prepetition secured debt. Judge David Jones was appointed as a mediator in the case on Thursday. To top it off, on Friday evening, dip agent Wilmington Savings Fund Society filed an enforcement notice and notice of events of default, referencing two events of default that tie back to the case milestones in the dip, one of which, the deadline to file an acceptable plan, had been extended on a day-by-day basis over the last week and a half. The enforcement notice kicks off a five-business-day notice period, during which the debtors, dip agent, and dip lenders have consented to a hearing on an expedited basis for the purposes of contesting whether a termination event has occurred and is continuing, and any arguments for continued imposition of the automatic stay. As long as a hearing is requested to be heard before the end of the notice period, but is scheduled for a later date by the court, the notice period would be automatically extended to the date of the conclusion of such later hearing. All DIP obligations, including approximately $100 million of new money in a $50 million roll-up, would be due and payable as of the notice effective date. We've also seen non-oil and gas deals fall by the wayside, including an abandoned going concern sale for 44 Wolf and Levin furniture stores in the Art Van Furniture case. On Friday, counsel for the buyer said discussions were underway to, quote, reinvigorate the deal. Art Van Furniture follows the fate of other bankruptcies seen recently, such as from restaurant and retail businesses, in which the cases are put on hold or due to financing limitations cannot move forward. Debtors' counsel and Art Van said the debtors intend to request authorization to put themselves into, quote, stasis or certainly life support mode over the next six weeks or so. The company announced on March 20 that it had suspended operations in all of its retail stores. On Tuesday, Medell's, the sporting goods chain, filed a motion seeking to temporarily suspend their cases, 
saying they have been unable to conduct the liquidation sales at the cornerstone of their case strategy and have had to temporarily mothball operations. The debtors requested approval to defer payment of all expenses other than, quote, absolutely essential expenses and to cease operations, including their store closing sales and fulfillment of e-commerce orders, terminate store-level and distribution center employees, and stop all in-person operations at headquarters, leaving a skeleton crew. Counsel for the debtors argued that without the requested suspension, the cases would need to be converted to Chapter 7, a sentiment echoed by counsel to the lenders. A District of New Jersey case, Judge Vincent Papalia on Friday approved a revised form of order for an approximately 30-day suspension through April 30th, as opposed to the originally proposed 60-day suspension. Restaurant operator Craftworks on Friday, March 20, filed a similar motion seeking a 60-day breathing spell in the wake of a notice of default and termination under its dip financing. The debtors ceased operations and, quote, commenced the work necessary for the mothballing of their operations. According to the motion, the debtors are seeking, quote, to suspend as much of their operations and related administrative expenses as feasibly possible and cut expenses to the bare minimum in hopes of restarting their operations and reopening their stores at some point in the future when the need for restaurants to be closed in order to combat the COVID-19 crisis will hopefully have passed. The debtors say that this is the, quote, only path that potentially leads to a survival of their business the reemployment of some of their approximately 18,000 employees, and reoccupancy of some of the debtors' 261 restaurants. Quote, in order to have a chance, however, the debtors need to drastically limit all expenses, including professional fees. Delaware Judge Brendan Shannon said in a letter filed on the docket Monday that he was, quote, not inclined to grant relief along the lines proposed in the procedures motion by the debtors. A telephonic hearing on the motion is set for Monday, March 30, so stay tuned. And that's it for me this week. Stay safe and healthy and look forward to speaking to you next week. Back to you, Raksha. Thanks, Sean. And now here is Jim Holloway from Houston with a week ahead. Well, thanks, Raksha. Good morning, everyone. Greetings from down here. This is a week, the week ahead I'm talking about, that's genuinely not busy in terms of things that are scheduled. But we're in one of those interesting periods of history where pretty much everything is driven by what is not on the calendar. So with that said, let's get started. Monday, March 30th, Dean Foods, there's a bid deadline. Good luck with that, gents. Tuesday, March 31, there is nothing scheduled. Wednesday, April 1st. Who better to greet today than the California Public Utilities Commission? They're expected to make a planned proceeding decision, not today, but sometime this month. Which reminds me, I got an email from Plump Jack Winery the other day. Plump Jack being one of the many ventures of the immensely talented Governor Gavin Newsom of California. And in the event you were thinking, like me, of hoeing up in the depths of the Atchafalaya Bayou with some provisions... How about considering Plump Jack's 100.0 debt? It's a Cabernet Sauvignon, hope I pronounced that right, has a black currant, black cherry, blueberry, and loads of graphite. I guess that's referring to the flavor. Don't know what graphite tastes like. Anyways, it costs two grand. That's two with three zeros for a little less than a gallon. Or you could consider with that same two grand getting yourself 669 bottles of fuzzy navel from Boone's Farm, which is, of course, another distinguished 
California Winery. Also on Wednesday, the bell tolls for the Frontier Communications. You have coupons due on a number of secured and unsecured notes and also Whiting Petroleum. One of those names in the news, it has a convert maturing and a coupon due on its six and a quarters. Thursday, April 2nd, Chew, a purveyor of pet foods, fourth quarter earnings and a call. And Friday, the 3rd of April, Dean Foods, sale hearing and a second day hearing in Foresight. And that's it. And back to Raksha. Bye-bye, y'all. And now, here's Karen Lung and others from our opioid team, Andrew Sung and Kevin Eckhart. Hello, I'm Karen Lung, a legal analyst on the America's Core Credit Team. I'm here with legal analyst Kevin Eckhart and senior analyst Andrew Sung to discuss the state of play in the opioid litigation that we follow here at Reorg. We'll also discuss the specialty pharmaceutical company Malincrot and its proposed opioid litigation settlement and related restructuring transactions, and recent news that makes that proposal more challenging to implement. And we'll talk about the latest in the Chapter 11 cases for Purdue Pharma. The three of us are working remotely today, talking to each other from home, uh, and it's Friday, March 27th today. If you'd asked me a few weeks ago what we'd be doing today, I would have thought that at least one of us would actually be sitting in a courtroom in Long Island for a trial on public nuisance claims filed by the state of New York and Nassau and Suffolk counties in New York state court. It was one of a number of trials calendared for the coming months in cases filed by governmental entities against opioid manufacturers and distributors, as well as pharmacies. However, the trial has now been delayed because of the coronavirus pandemic. Our colleague Kevin was actually in the courtroom when this adjournment was announced, and we're lucky to have him with us today to discuss the latest in the New York State Court litigation. Thanks, Karen. Yeah, I expected it to be me in in Central Islip for that trial this week. Uh, It was also very interesting to be in court that day when Justice Gargiulo, the judge handling the matter, was handed a note sending everyone home all of a sudden. The trial was scheduled to begin jury selection a week ago today after local court, the local court and appellate court denied the defendant's repeated request to postpone to allow for more discovery. Of course, now the courts are generally not handling trials due to the need to summon hundreds of potential jurors and have counsel travel in from out of state. So it's not clear when the next opioid trial will happen, and that creates uncertainty as to when any global settlement will be agreed. As you remember, I was also in the courtroom in Cleveland in October 2019 when that trial settled at the very last moment. Uh, We'll discuss that more in a moment. And trial dates tend to focus settlement discussions. Uh, Without a trial date pending, it is often more difficult to herd all of these cats, the states, the counties, the tribes, insurers, manufacturers, pharmacies, and distributors. Uh, in favor of a global settlement. Justice Gargiulo said back uh, on March 10th when everything was pushed that he hopes to reconvene the New York case for trial in May, assuming the courts are back in business. Uh, Right now that seems a bit optimistic. The New York trial involves the claims of the New York Attorney General and Nassau and Suffolk counties against manufacturers, including Teva, Endo, Malincrod, and others, uh, distributors, Cardinal, Amerisource, and McKesson, and pharmacies such as Walgreens, CVS, Rite Aid, and Walmart under the public nuisance doctrine, which is the biggest dollar value claim against the defendants in the opioid litigation, uh, and the one that therefore we're watching the most closely. 
Under this theory, a party that interferes with public use of common resources, such as air, water, streets, public health systems, or the police, is strictly liable for abating that nuisance. Essentially, the plaintiffs want, to, want the defendants to cover the future cost of cleaning up the opioid crisis, including additional uninsured health costs, treatment for addicts, child and family services coverage for the children of addicts, and police attention to opioid crimes and trafficking. The states and counties argue that the defendants interfered with public health and safety by lying about the dangers of their opioid drugs, uh, using trade groups to push a pro-opioid agenda, and failing to monitor and stop suspicious prescriptions. They say the defendants' actions have caused addiction, illness, and crime, and the company should have to pay for the cost of addressing these issues. There's a somewhat novel application of the public nuisance concept in the law. Generally, public nuisance cases focus on environmental pollution. So far, however, the plaintiff's theory has survived dismissal and summary judgment challenges in virtually every proceeding except one state case in South Dakota, in which the judge concluded public nuisance claims don't apply in this context. That decision's been an outlier, however. Uh, the defendants do have a number of factual and legal defenses to employ a trial on the public nuisance theory. They will argue that the crisis was caused not by prescription drugs, but by illegal drug trafficking by criminal enterprises. Uh, they'll argue that the prescribing behavior of doctors and not their efforts caused the problem. And they'll also blame federal, state, and local authorities for not investigating and prosecuting physicians and traffickers that violated the law. They'll generally also say that the entire crisis is simply too complex and multifaceted to force them and only them to shoulder the cost of abatement. The trial in New York would have been only on public nuisance liability, whether the defendants created an interference with public life through their marketing and distribution efforts and thus caused the opioid crisis. If the jury says yes, then another trial would be held on the amount they would have to pay to address the resulting problem. If the plaintiffs prove the defendants created a nuisance, these governments want multiple billions of dollars for treatment of addiction, hospital costs, and criminal enforcement going forward for the next 10 to 15 years. The exact amount they will seek is not clear, but the two county plaintiffs in the Cleveland trial that settled in 2019 were seeking more than $5 billion just for their abatement costs. You can imagine that the amount sought by all the other defendants added together uh, could be ruinous. Thanks, Kevin. So if that trial had gone forward as planned on March 20th, that New York public nuisance case would have been the second major opioid case to go to trial. The first was the Oklahoma Attorney General's public nuisance suit against Johnson & Johnson last summer uh, in Oklahoma State Court. In that case, Judge Thad Balkman ordered J&J to pay $465 million for misleading marketing and promotion of opioid products, as well as other activities leading to the creation of a, an asserted public nuisance in the state and contributing to Oklahoma's opioid crisis. Now, the Oklahoma Attorney General actually sued for $17 billion dollars. The estimated cost for a 30-year plan formulated by Oklahoma to abate the nuisance. Getting back to that $465 million number, there are two aspects of the ruling that I'd highlight here just because there'll be major considerations for other public nuisances as well. And as Kevin mentioned, the public nuisance doctrine is a tool that many governmental entities are using to sue over the opioid crisis. 
One issue is how much abatement is required after a defendant is found liable for public nuisance. That $465 million number represents the costs for year one of the state's abatement plan. So Judge Balkman didn't order Johnson & Johnson to pay for all three decades of the proposed abatement plan, but only the first year. He wrote that although several of the state's witnesses testified that the abatement plan would take at least 20 years to work, the state didn't present sufficient evidence of the amount of time and costs necessary beyond year one. Uh, The other issue relates to joint and several liability and the impacts of settlements with other defendants, basically a defendant's piece of the liability pie. The Oklahoma Attorney General was pursuing its public nuisance claim against Purdue Pharma and Teva, as well as Johnson and Johnson. But before trial, uh, Teva and John, uh, sorry, T- Purdue and Teva settled um, for two hundred and seventy million dollars and eighty-five million dollars, respectively. So uh, Johnson and Johnson argued that well, it should get a settlement credit and that the court's judgment against it should be reduced by $355 million uh, to reflect those settlements with Teva and Purdue. But the court turned down J&J's request for a settlement credit, writing that there has been no finding of fault entered against those other parties. Now, both sides have appealed Judge Balkman's judgment to the state's highest court, which is the Oklahoma Supreme Court. J&J argues that the trial court's decision should be overturned because it's really holding the company responsible for the state's entire opioid crisis and essentially uh, that the court has ordered the company to fund dozens of government programs, some of those arguments that Kevin mentioned earlier. Um, On the other hand, the state argues that J&J should be required to pay for complete abatement of the nuisance, all 30 years of the abatement plan. Enforcement of the trial court's judgment has been stayed now, pending the resolution of the appeals, and we'll be keeping an eye out for a decision. But like Kevin said, Oklahoma was just trial number one among many to come. Yes, uh, Karen, one of the challenges of covering this topic is the patchwork of different suits proceeding in different courts at different levels across the country. Generally, claims brought by the states through their attorneys general proceed in local state courts, and claims brought by cities, counties, hospitals, insurers, tribes, and individuals proceed in a coordinated multi-district litigation based in Cleveland through a federal judge in Cleveland, Dan Polster. Uh, that ju- the Judge Polster has sent some of those proceedings back to their original local federal courts for trial, including cases in Chicago, West Virginia, and San Francisco. Judge Polster, as the MDL judge, tries to act as the central coordinator of discovery disputes and settlement discussions among the thousands of plaintiffs and different defendants. Unlike a judge in a class action, though, he will not actually hold trials in all these cases if they don't settle, and his decisions are not technically binding in every proceeding. He is basically in an advisory role working with the defendants and the plaintiff's executive committee or PEC in the MDL. And that's a committee that is uh, composed of lawyers, certain lawyers who represent certain of the counties and municipalities. Uh, This lack of coordination has a profound effect on the settlement process as we'll discuss in a little bit. We tracked the state court 
cases like those in New York and Oklahoma that also keep a close eye on the federal opioid MDL. We do a lot of docket searches and attend a lot of status conferences. Of course, uh, getting back to New York, as I said above, we, we don't need know when the New York trial will actually start. Uh, another trial is set for Tennessee in state court in May, but it's unclear if that will be able to go forward right now. And the two trials cannot go forward at the same time because the same attorneys and witnesses would be involved. Uh, there's a trial set in Alabama in July that may be the next likely date to go forward, um, and a West Virginia trial in federal court involving distributors only, and that's McKesson, Amerisource, and Cardinal, is set for late August. Uh, the next big state trial after New York and then, uh, and then Tennessee and Alabama is in Orange County, California in September. A federal trial in the MDL in Ohio is set for November, though the defendants, as in all these cases, have asked to push that back. It's a typical defense strategy in mass tort cases to try to push the day of reckoning as far into the future as possible and hold on to your money. In this case, time really is money. The other defense strategy to push back the big payouts is to settle local cases with individual plaintiffs piecemeal as they come up for trial. That's what happened back in October 2019 when the distributor defendants in Teva settled the first MDL trial in Cleveland the night before uh, opening arguments for more than $200 million, and that only resolved the claims of the two Ohio counties who were involved in that particular action. Of course, this could get very expensive, settling every trial out of 3000 at once, so everyone wants the global settlement. Um, failing that, the defendants will try to get these individual trials pushed back. The coronavirus crisis has given them one more argument to do just that, though the parties are trying to finish discovery through teleconference depositions and other novel approaches. Well, thanks for explaining those puzzle pieces to us, Kevin. Um, one th- one topic that uh, I was interested to see that you've written about recently, uh, particularly in the opioid MDL, is the request for a common benefit fund by the plaintiff's executive committee that you mentioned earlier. What is this common benefit fund and do you think it could impact settlement considerations? I I, I think it will have a big impact. The common benefit fund issue has brought to the forefront another key issue in all of these mass tort cases like tobacco and asbestos. Um, And that's how to pay the lawyers who are actually you know, make, giving the advice to their clients and, and doing the work. Essentially, the Common Benefit Fund is a way for the lawyers for the lead counties and cities in the federal MDL, the members of the plaintiff's executive committee that I mentioned, um, to get paid an additional bonus. They want to impose a 7% tax on all opioid recoveries in all courts, uh, including ones in which they don't have any clients to pay their fees and expenses. Their argument is that they have done so much of the work for the other counties and cities in discovery and motion practice in the MDL that they should get some contribution from the recoveries of other plaintiffs in cases in which they were not involved. In other words, they're basically saying that the recoveries in individual cases in which they're not working are built on their work and discovery and filing motions in Ohio and not just that of the local lawyer. As you can imagine, that has not gone over well. Uh, Many cities and counties have objected. Uh, They generally hire their own private lawyers on a contingency fee basis, and those attorneys don't want to share those fees. The states, which generally don't use private counsel, but use attorneys from their own attorney general's offices, 
also object that the PUC has tried to carve them out of the tax. The defendants themselves object that this all makes settlement more difficult uh, by creating animosity among the lawyers uh, and, and among the plaintiffs at a, at a crucial juncture. And the issue of fees, they say, should wait until later, which is the way it's generally done in large class action cases. The briefs have gone back and forth and it's gotten pretty heated with the attorneys accusing each other of various attorney-like misdeeds. The issue really, for, for our purposes, highlights the difficulty, again, of getting all these parties to agree on a global settlement that not only allocates recoveries to the hardest hit places and among defendants uh, by their percentage of fault and liability as well as their ability to pay, but also among the hundreds of lawyers working on this matter, all of whom are expecting a potentially huge payday along the lines of the tobacco settlement, the kind of money that uh, allows you to put your name on your old law school. <laughs> well, I guess this really highlights that moving the opioid litigation forward means we have to figure out how to pay the lawyers. Uh, now let's shift gears a bit and focus on specialty pharmaceutical company Mallinckrodt, a company that Andrew has covered extensively. Late last month, the company announced the terms of an agreement in principle for a global settlement that would resolve all opioid-related claims, and uh, the company also put forward proposals for refinancing transactions that would support that settlement. Andrew, can you tell us more about that? Uh, Sure. Thanks, Karen. Um, So... Actually, recent news that came out um, that the company actually did not meet certain requirements under this global opioid settlement in principle uh, now makes this much more of a fluid situation uh, over really the next three weeks or so. Uh, But we can go back, uh, let's rewind a bit and go back to the global opioid settlement in principle that was announced uh, in late February, and then we can uh, later get to sort of why we think it seems like uh, the situation is actually much more in flux uh, over the next few weeks. So the global opioid settlement uh, that was announced in, in February um, sort of contemplated a, a multi-layered uh, settlement. So it was agreed uh, agreed upon with a court-appointed plaintiff's executive committee um, for the plaintiffs in the MDL, uh, in addition to attorneys general from 47 states and U.S. territories, and uh, actually subsequent to the announcement of the settlement, the New York State uh, had also joined uh, the settlement in principle. Um, so the settlement contemplated um, a, a filing of Chapter 11 for the company's specialty generic segment in a standalone Chapter 11 bankruptcy. So importantly, what the settlement contemplated was that Mallinckrodt PLC and the company's specialty brand segment, which actually is their core business, which makes up you know, about three-quarters of their revenue, um, would not be part of the Chapter 11 process. Um, so as part of the settlement, uh, Mallinckrodt would pay... Um, 1.6 billion in structured payments payable over an eight-year period uh, to to the plaintiffs upon a specialty generics emerging um, from bankruptcy. These payments would be contributed to a trust, uh, in addition to um, having warrants contributed to the trust to purchase the uh, Mallinckrodt common stock. So importantly, you know, Mallinckrodt PLC is staying out of bankruptcy. Uh, they would also retain uh, the equity in specialty generics. Um, and simply just fund the payments uh, in, fund the structured payments uh, into the trust. As part of this, um, the agreement contemplated Mallinckrodt uh, PLC to receive a channeling injunction that would uh, provide for a release of all opioid-related claims um, 
that have been or could have been asserted against Mallinckrodt TLC or its subsidiaries. Um, and so, in addition to this, um, you know, in addition to just the uh, potentially unmanageable opioid liability, uh, the company also had a, a debt maturity or has a debt maturity coming up uh, actually in about three weeks, uh, April 15, 2020. So, what the global settlement contemplated was also a debt refinancing transaction. Um, whereby the company would effectively look to exchange its nearest dated unsecured debt maturities. So the debt maturity due that I just mentioned in April 2020, plus uh, some notes due in August 2022, and in exchange um, they would look for a new first lien term loan and uh, new, sen- uh, new senior secured second lien notes would be issued as well. So it would be sort of an up-tier exchange uh, to clear out some near-term uh, unsecured maturities. But in order to effectuate this transaction, um, they needed the company needed required consents by a certain threshold of existing term loan and revolving lenders, which at the time of the announcement had not yet been satisfied. And so, you know, the recent news actually is that about you know nine days ago on on March 18th, um, after the company received a, a negative judgment from CMS regarding its top selling drug Axar. Um, the company disclosed that its lender parties actually did not expect to fund the new uh, first lien term loan that was part of the refinancing transaction, and it also did not expect the credit agreement to be amended. Um, and so, you know, what the company said more or less was that they're right now just engaging in discussions with certain of their debt holders regarding sort of alternative refinancing transactions. So, you know, at the moment they're kind of starting starting from from square one again, um, and you know they're kind of running up against the clock here with the bond maturity coming up in a few weeks. Um, and you know we can get to that in a second, but I'll kick it back over to Kevin, uh, who can provide some more context uh, on the opioid litigation as it relates specifically to Mallinckrodt. Yeah, it's interesting, Andrew. The the Mallinckrodt on March 9th filed a motion to sever itself from the New York case based on settlement and on having brought the last holdout, the New York Attorney General, in favor of it. That was actually being argued when someone stepped into the courtroom and handed Justice Gargiulo a note that said, send everybody home. Um, the New York AG supported the request to separate Mal and Cross from that trial, um, saying that he had agreed to the settlement because they felt, and their financial analysts, the plaintiff's financial analysts, felt that Malin Crock could not survive an adverse judgment or pay an adverse judgment, and were going to file for bankruptcy anyway, even if they won at trial, so they may as well take what they got through that settlement. Uh, Nassau County's attorneys, however, objected to letting Malin Crock out of the trial, arguing that its claims should go forward because the settlement was not a done deal, and the allocation of the $1.6 billion between states and municipalities was not clear. Of course, Nassau County appears to have made a very prescient argument, thanks to the Axar judgment, the settlement is very much in doubt. Again, this argument highlights the conflicts between the AGs on one hand, all of whom agreed to the Malincrot deal, and the thousands of plaintiff cities and counties. The states have actually argued in court that the cities and counties don't have any claims that as subdivisions of the states, their claims belong to the Attorney General. This argument is on appeal in the Sixth Circuit. A decision in favor of the states might simplify the situation. The Nassau dissent also demonstrates that the attorneys on the plaintiff's executive committee in the MDL, which agreed to the Mallinckrodt deal, don't necessarily represent the opinions of the thousands of cities and counties that are involved. 
the PEC can agree to a deal, but that doesn't automatically bind all of these municipalities. They would still have their own claims to pursue and an independent right um, not to go along with the deal. There's a certified negotiation class in the MDL that could bind all of the cities and counties to a deal if one is reached, but the defendants generally don't want to negotiate with it, uh, and some of the municipalities as well as the defendants have appealed the creation of that class. It's a very novel concept, and whether the class will hold up on appeal is unclear. Uh, putting the class aside, right now there's no single body that can negotiate for and bind all of the thousands of municipalities uh, and attorneys general to a deal, let alone private insurers, tribes and hospitals, and individual victims, such as the class of guardians for babies who were born um, with opioid addiction in utero. Even the class deal, if the class holds up and negotiates a settlement, would require a 75% vote of all the plaintiffs to become binding. As you can see, a global settlement remains a difficult proposition in this litigation, which is why Purdue filed for bankruptcy and Mallinckrodt considered doing so. A bankruptcy may be the only way to cram down settlements on these reluctant plaintiffs. Thanks for explaining those settlement dynamics to us, Kevin. Uh, and Andrew, let's go back to you uh, to just explain a little more uh, and expand more on your comment from earlier about uh, recent news that makes it look like Malincrot's proposed opioid settlement and those related transactions are now on much shakier ground and may not happen. What are the details of that recent news? Yeah, so um, about a couple of weeks ago, uh, earlier in March, um, the company had received uh, or received a decision from the U.S. District Court of, of D.C. Uh, in its suit against uh, Health and Human Services and CMS um, with respect to its top-selling drug, Axar, which accounts for about 30% of its revenue. Um, and this was in regard to the calculation of Medicaid drug rebates for Axar. Um, and so what happened was the district court upheld CMS's decision to uh, reverse the previous determination uh, of the base state average manufacturer price um, used to calculate Axar jail rebates. And so what Malcott is stated is that they're going to move for a stay in reconsideration, and if necessary, uh, they're going to look to appeal this to the U.S. Uh, Court of Appeals. Um, so, you know, while, while we don't know exactly why the lenders did not agree to amend the credit agreement or why prospective lenders uh, eventually declined to fund a new uh, refinancing term loan, uh, this CMS decision sort of triggered um, a previously communicated worst-case scenario, uh, I guess, for the company with respect to ACTAR. Um, so, as I mentioned, uh, Actar is their top-selling drug. It accounts for about 30% of their revenue. Um, it's a very high-margin product as well. And so what this C a negative CMS judgment does is it potentially triggers um, $650 million, as estimated by the company, in retroactive payments, which more or less represents the company's uh, Actar Medicaid-related revenue from uh, the beginning of 2013 to the present. Um, and so on a go-forward basis, um, this would effectively reduce Actar sales by about $90 million to $100 million, and this is a drug that does about uh, you know, a billion or so in sales a year. And so you're seeing on a go-forward basis, um, Actar sales are, you know, provided that this judgment holds, um, would be reduced by about 10%. So, um, you know, it's sort of, it's very negative sort of to the, um, to, to the, business operations 
and completely unrelated to sort of all the opioid litigation that we've been talking about. And just a few more words on the summary judgment opinion in Mallinckrodt's lawsuit against CMS. The action is one of a number of lawsuits related to pricing and payment for the flagship HP Akthar gel product. And and the opinion from the district court, uh, Andrew touched on this earlier, found that Mallinckrodt and QuestCore, which Mallinckrodt acquired in 2014, took advantage of a misunderstanding by CMS uh, in 2012. Mallinckrodt then used that error to deprive Medicaid of hundreds of millions of dollars in rebates on Akthar gel since 2013, says the opinion. Uh, so what are what are the immediate effects of that? Well, Mallinckrodt has responded, as Andrew mentioned, by filing a motion to reconsider or stay the decision. Of course, the company wants to avoid paying that retroactive rebate of $650 million and uh, losing its right to participate in the Medicaid program. At a status conference this month, though, the company's counsel did comment that a bankruptcy filing wasn't imminent, wasn't necessarily imminent. And the government defendants uh, also have agreed to refrain from terminating Mallinckrodt's access to the CMS document system for 60 days. That means that a uh, the termination of the company's Medicaid participation would be pushed out to August 31st at the earliest. Counsel for the government also indicated that the retroactive rebate also, you know, might not be have to be paid in a single lump sum. So, with those comments from the parties, Andrew, what are you looking out for in terms of next steps for Mallinckrodt? Yeah, I mean, I think. Um you know, we we sort of covered the opioid litigation, um, which is which has been a huge overhang, and this Actar CMS decision has also been an overhang. But I guess people have sort of forgotten about it a little bit just because the opioid um, litigation was sort of all encompassing. But um, one extra thing that I alluded to earlier was you know their capital structure, where they have a bond maturity due on April 15 of this year, so in you know two to three weeks. Uh, from now, um, so there's $615 million outstanding on that on that bond, um, and it's currently trading at 70 cents on the dollar. So, um, you know, while credit markets are not always efficient, that's certainly pricing in a relatively high likelihood of potentially a, a full-scale comprehensive bankruptcy. Um, the company just notably had, you know, almost $800 million of cash on the balance sheet as of December, and traditionally is cash flow positive, um, but sort of given where credit markets are, or pricing this bond, and sort of um, that refinancing negotiations are sort of in flux, um, it, it's really hard to say. Um, but, you know, one notable thing is they do have, um, you know, first lien capacity to potentially um, utilize to refinance these notes, but, you know, I keep coming back to sort of where where the bonds are trading, um, you know, three weeks and trading at 70 cents on the dollar um, makes it hard to sort of uh, handicap what's going on just given sort of where all the other unsecured notes are trading. Um, but, you know, so we, we actually don't know what will happen. Um, you know, in late February, it looked like the company had reached a resolution that was pretty favorable to them. Uh, but now the clock is ticking for them to, you know, reach either an agreement or a refinancing transaction. Uh, or otherwise, you know, they might be facing a full-scale capital lift 
you know, all of consolidated known products. Thanks, Andrew. Uh, We'll finish today with an update on the Purdue Pharma Chapter 11 cases in the bankruptcy court for the Southern District of New York. Of course, Purdue is quite different from a lot of names that we follow just because uh, the company didn't have funded debt. The maker of it was the maker of OxyContin owned by the Sackler families and had been the target of over 2,600 lawsuits when it filed for Chapter 11 last September. And it filed for bankruptcy relief with a proposal, uh, a kind of framework for a settlement of opioid claims that would see the owners of Purdue contributing all assets to a trust for the benefit of claimants and the American people, they said. The Sackler families would also contribute at least $3 billion over a period of seven years. The new company to be formed in Chapter 11 would also potentially contribute tens of millions of doses of opioid uh, overdose reversal and addiction treatment medications at no or low cost. So that was the settlement proposal that they had in hand when they filed for Chapter 11. Now, while a number of government and governmental entities who have fought, who have previously filed claims against Purdue uh, do support this settlement framework, others don't, and they really haven't been shy about it. Uh, the those that are not currently supportive of the settlement include an ad hoc group of non-consenting states that includes 24 states and the stri- the District of Columbia. And early on in the case, the Purdue debtors obtained a preliminary injunction that prevents governmental entities and individual claimants from bringing opioid-related actions against the debtors and related parties. Uh, The scope of of this injunction was important, um, especially because related parties included former or current owners, directors, employees, uh, and covered certain members of the Sackler family. Last week, the bankruptcy court uh, extended that preliminary injunction through October 5th. The idea is that the preliminary injunction provides a pause on litigation while the key parties work toward a resolution. So the injunction gives the parties breathing room to do that. The court uh, earlier this month appointed two mediators, Kenneth Feinberg and retired Judge Lane Phillips, to move those talks forward including on value allocation. And so we'll see what comes out of the mediation talks and we'll be watching that situation closely. That's it from us for this week. Thank you so much, Kevin and Andrew, for joining us to talk about opioid litigation and Malincrat. And uh, I'm sure that we'll all reconvene again to talk about that again soon. Thank you all. And thanks for again listening to this Reorg Weekly Review. As always, find all of our podcasts on the Reorg Media page, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Hope you and your families are healthy and safe. I'm Connor Skelding.